Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. He's the one that nobody else would want to be uh, the one to greet him and to welcome him to that area. He is known simply as the Gadarene demoniac. Here he might have been called the Crockett Crazy, but he was there known as the Gadarene demoniac. This guy was wild. Nobody could restrain him. They would try to chain him to keep him from hurting himself, and he would break the chains. And at night, they would hear him crying out in the mountains, and in and out of the tombs, he would dwell, and he would cut himself with uh, rocks and all kinds of stuff, torturing himself and tormenting himself. But when Jesus steps out of the boat, he rushes up to him and begins to interact with Jesus. Jesus says to an unclean spirit in this man, a demon, come out of him. Then he asks him, what is your name? What is your name? Jesus knew the man's name. He knew the demon's identity, but he asked to elicit a response. And the demon responds inside the man, we are legion for there are many of us, hundreds and hundreds of demons perhaps, multitudes of demons in this man. And then they beg Jesus not to cast them out into the abyss, but to cast them into the swine feeding nearby. And so Jesus casts them out. The swine in turn run down the side of the cliff into the water and drown. People are in awe of what's happened here. Word got out throughout the country and many people began to run out to see what Jesus had done in this man's life. And I love what it says about this man. When they arrived, they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and who had the legion of demons sitting and clothed in his right mind. He was sitting there clothed in his right mind. And then it says, fear came over them all and they asked Jesus to leave. But just think about that. When Jesus changes a life, we may appear crazy to others, but in reality, he has made us right in our minds, right in our relationship with God, and we are spiritually sane for the very first time. We are alive in Christ. And so when I think about that man, I think about myself, I think about fellow believers here today, that when Jesus came into your life for the first time, you were in in an experience of spiritual sanity. You understood the word of God to be true. You understood Christ to be the savior. You understood your need for salvation because of your sin and rebellion to God. And in a great act of 
sanity, you received Christ as your Savior and claimed him as your Lord and pled with him for his forgiveness. And he caused you to be seated, fully aware in your right mind. Well, today we're going to see that false teachers suffer from spiritual insanity and they inflict that malady on any and everyone else that they can. And so today I want us to focus on spiritual insanity. You've talked about people messing with your minds. Well, these are people who mess with the minds of people in order to entrap them in this thing that we call spiritual insanity. So let's look together at 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 15. We're going to read verses 15 and 16. And we're going to focus today on spiritual insanity. Verse 15 is speaking of the false teachers that have crept in among the body of Christ that Peter is addressing this letter to, the extended body of Christ in various locations. He said, they're going to creep in among you. And he's speaking about them. And he says in verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But Balaam was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb or mute donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Let's pray together. Father, you command us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable will that you have for us, that perfect will. So, Father, that's our prayer today as we look at your word, that you would renew our minds, that you would deepen our spiritual sanity, and that you would heighten our discernment of spiritual insanity around us. So, Father, we are awaiting to hear from you, and that's our prayer, that you would please speak, because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by defining what spiritual insanity is. I think that would be helpful for us. And then as we move through the passage, it will be uh, expounded a little bit. But as the passage states, spiritual insanity is forsaking God or the way of God, but forsaking God, following your flesh and hoping for freedom and fulfillment. Forsaking God, following your flesh, and hoping for freedom and fulfillment. That's the trap of spiritual insanity. Looking for something in a way that you cannot receive it. So it is following 
your flesh, having forsaken God, and hoping that somehow you'll find freedom and fulfillment. So false teachers promote this facade of fulfillment. If you'll, if you'll do this and ignore some of the Bible and, and you'll just grasp this, then, then you'll get all you want, God will meet your needs, and, and you will be fulfilled. And it's a facade that's painted for you. But when you step behind that wall of facade, there is absolutely nothing there that brings fulfillment. And so that's the picture. They are actually saying, I want to welcome you into my world of spiritual insanity. We're all crazy, but we'll all seem normal if we stay away from that, which is true. What a bizarre place to be. So they promise freedom, but they deliver entrapment. They promise fulfillment, but they deliver emptiness. And so it's that spiritual insanity we're going to dig into today and look at ways to be aware of it, to detect it, and to avoid it. And it all hinges on two questions. What are you forsaking and who are you following? That can tell me nearly everything about you. That can tell you nearly everything about me. When I tell you what I'm forsaking and who I'm following, that really defines much about who I am. So let's look first at that first question. What are you forsaking? What is it that you're leaving behind? Notice how the passage begins in verse 15. The false teachers have forsaken the right way and gone astray. They have turned their backs on what is right and they are straying away from the truth of God's word. So that would be a good definition of a false teacher. A true teacher lives in line with the word of God. A false teacher forsakes it, walks away, and strays away from God himself. So it doesn't matter how well a person speaks of the Bible, where they hold it and profess that it's true and good, they toss it aside. I didn't mean to drop it that hard. They toss it aside and then give you all of this philosophy and all this stuff, self-help, but it never ties back into the word of God. That's the problem. That's what a false teacher does. But a true teacher lives and breathes the word of God. They, they live it, they love it, and they lift it up before others. So what are you forsaking? Well, he's going to use an image here in verse 15 about a man named Balaam. They are following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, when you think of Balaam, immediately you might say, oh, that's the guy that had the talking uh, donkey. Well, there's a lot more to that story than just the fact that his donkey uh, spoke to him. So let's turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. I think it's helpful not to assume that we fully understand the story, but to look back at it, to read it together, and to, to look at that because that's the heart of our passage today. These people, these false teachers who were experiencing and promoting spiritual insanity had an example of who they were and what they were doing in the Old Testament. His name was Balaam. We're going to be reading in verse 10. 
of Numbers chapter 22. And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. So here's a man who's been asked by a non-believer, a Moabite, who does not know the king of Israel, the God of Israel. He doesn't know that God, but he just knows that this group that has been uh, experiencing exodus out of Egypt, they're innumerable and they're intimidating him. So he asked Balaam to curse the people of God. And so Balaam is telling God what he's been asked to do. So in essence, Balaam's saying, this guy that doesn't know you, that despises you, is intimidated by your people. And he's asking me to pronounce a curse on your people. And God said to Balaam in verse 12, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. The sign of a false teacher is they curse what God has blessed and they bless what God has cursed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. All sounds good to this point. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes back, more numerous and more honorable than the first. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will certainly honor you greatly and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come and curse this people. A little bit of bribery going on there. He's saying, I'll I'll bless you if you'll curse them. Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me because I will honor you greatly, etc. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. That sounds like a noble statement, doesn't it? He's saying, I I can't go beyond what God tells me. I, I can't curse what he's blessed. I can't do it. Then he goes on to say, now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Verse 20, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So he's saying, if they come and call you, then you go with them, but even in going with them, you still do only what I say to do. So Balaam arose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. There's no evidence that they came to get him, but he gets up and he goes with them. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him, and he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now who's this angel of the Lord? You find reference to him repeated in the Old Testament. 
He is a representation of God and many times refers to himself as God and is referred to as a deity. Many people believe it's a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. It's powerful that angel of the Lord comes toward Balaam. God is about to manifest himself to this man. And it says in verse 23, now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand and the donkey turned out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn him back onto the road. Here's the problem. The donkey was more aware of the presence of God than Balaam was. It says in verse 24, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall and he struck her again. Even rejecting a donkey that's trying to protect him. Strange picture. Verse 26, then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey, struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Can you imagine that? You've corrected your pet or whatever, and they turn and say, why do you keep making me go outside? The donkey begins to speak to Balaam, and he doesn't appear to be shocked. So the donkey's talking to him. Why, why do you keep striking me? I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me or mocked me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. He's enraged. It's one thing to hear a donkey talking to you. It's another to talk back to the donkey. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed or accustomed to do this to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me or it is contrary before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you that you shall speak. So Balaam went back with the princes. Balaam went back with the princes of Balak. 
hear what the angel of the Lord said? You have, in verse 32, your way is perverse before me. And the angel of the Lord was prepared to take his life. What does that tell us? The father is infuriated by false teachers. He doesn't take that lightly. Why should we take it lightly? So here is a false teacher, a false representative of God, a walking contrary to the ways of God, and the angel of the Lord comes to take his life. The donkey steps in with spiritual perception and some crazy manner and begins to interact with Balaam. So now let's turn back to our text in 2 Peter 2. Think about that contrary way. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So the picture here is, is in this passage that these men have forsaken and continue to forsake, or these women and men have forsaken and continually forsake the ways of God, and they choose the wages of unrighteousness. So the picture here is they've forsaken and they're following. You know what's interesting in Luke 14, 33, it says, if any man does not forsake all that he has and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. In a positive way, Jesus uses those words. At the end of the message, we're going to look at another example of the use of those words, forsaking and following. In order to become a Christian and to become a disciple of Christ, when God's conviction comes upon you for your sin, and for righteousness and judgment, and you turn to Christ and, and you recognize him as your only hope and your Savior and the Lord, what you're doing is you have to forsake the world, just like I have decided to follow Jesus says, the world behind me, the cross before me, you are forsaking this and you are following him. The false teacher forsakes him follows this. Do you see the dynamic there? So the whole thing centers on those two words, forsaking and following. So the question is, what are you forsaking? Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's another way the word is used. Am I forsaking the assembly when I should be under the word of God? Am I forsaking the Lord in my daily decisions without consulting him? Am I looking for instant gratification rather than ultimate spiritual fulfillment. I'm forsaking something in my life. I'm turning my back on something. And from Balaam, we learn that partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. He is partially obedient. To be partial or partially obedient is to be disobedient to God. The story goes on there in the book of Numbers, but we're going to leave it at that. So to fulfill the flesh is to forsake the Father. 
To forsake the flesh gives you a position to follow the ways of God. What are you forsaking? What are you saying no to? And we don't want to fall into the danger of being legalistic to where everybody knows what we're against, but not what we're for. But what is it you were saved from? You were saved from an ungodly lifestyle. You were saved from uh, an addiction, perhaps, or an attitude. And, and God is still shaping us and forming us into the image of Christ. But, but there are things in our lives that we have forsaken to follow Christ. You can't follow without forsaking. You can't follow Christ and be flooded by the world and its influence. So that's the first question. What are you forsaking? Well, in this passage it says that the false teachers and those who follow them have forsaken the right way and gone astray. So here's another thing about false teachers. It's not just what they say, it's what they fail to say. Sometimes they don't say enough. They might speak well of Jesus as if he is a good option in life or a good assistant in life and fail to say that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the only hope of salvation. He's the one only holy and pure. He's the only one. He is the one I bow before. He doesn't come to my beck and call. He is Lord. So when you're trying to discern, is this spiritual truth? The question is, is what they are saying right? And is there anything they should be saying that they're not? They have forsaken the way and gone astray and they're leading others to do the same. Well, then the second question, who are you following? Who are you following? The next word is following in verse 15. They have forsaken the right way, gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Let's stop there. He was drawn by what he could get by doing what he knew was wrong. Now here's something you have to keep in mind. Although following a false teacher might give you instant gratification and it looks like it's gonna bring all this stuff to you and you're gonna prosper by it, it will ultimately cost you much more than you gain. It can cost you your soul. So the picture here is Balak was, was offering Balaam all this stuff and Balaam was desiring those wages for his unrighteousness. And it looked like that was a plus, but it was a great negative because it cost him dearly spiritually. False teachers typically try to get you to take your eyes off of eternity and live in this world and love this world. Scripture says, love not this world, neither things that are in this world. For the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh are not of the Father, 
but of this world. So who are you following? Let's look at Revelation 2, verse 14, at the uh, last book of the Bible, Revelation 2, verse 14. It speaks of Balaam. It's fascinating how many times Balaam is referenced in the rest of the Bible after his experience. Here Jesus is communicating to the seven churches in Asia Minor, particularly in this point, he's talking to the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. He's commended them, but then he says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, when you read the remainder of the story of Balaam, two sins were involved, idolatry and immorality. They were offering sacrifices at these seven altars to false gods, trying to cover all the bases, They were committing idolatry and he was right in there with them and encouraging others to do the same. And then there was sexual immorality going on. And so idolatry and immorality are running rampant among the people of God. And here Jesus is warning the church at Pergamum, if you don't change this, you are tolerating people who have this doctrine of Balaam that you can live in an idolatrous manner and commit immorality and it's okay. It's not okay. Do you see how those two travel together? Idolatry always leads to immorality. Because idolatry always gives you a God that you control. Even if it's a God in your mind that you try to shape the God of the Bible to, People might say, well, that's not what my God is like. Well, then your God is an idol because that's not the God of the Bible. And you create an idol that comes down to your standards, then that enables you to be immoral because your God is not holding you accountable. You are holding the God accountable to put his stamp of approval on your immorality. So if you follow a false God and you follow false teaching, that's where it always leads. You begin to idolize the teaching. You begin to buy into this and you are elevating it above scripture, what is that? It's an idol. And where does idolatry always take you? It takes you to the heart of your life being immoral, immoral. So notice how the verse 16 states in our text. But Balaam was rebuked for his iniquity, which means God doesn't let you get by with it. He rebuked him for his iniquity. A dumb donkey or a mute, speechless donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, remember how he described the false teachers in verse 12 up there? But these like natural brute beasts. He was saying these false teachers are living an animalistic, atheistic, type lifestyle. And then down here, he had to use a donkey to get the attention of a human because we were created a little lower than angels and sometimes we live a little lower than the animals. 
But it says the donkey spoke to restrain the madness or the insanity of the prophet. And we might not use that term, he's mad. We might think that means angry, but madness, that word in the original Greek language means being apart from your right thinking. It means to be off to the side of your mind. It's a combination of of two words that mean to be beside and your mind. Have you ever heard someone say, I, they're just beside themselves? That grew out of this concept in Scripture. So it's like they're out of their right mind. They're void of understanding. They are beside themselves, out of one's senses. They are insane. And so a mere donkey, an animal, is used by God because he appears to be at that moment smarter than Balaam. And and why was he driven toward this? He loved the wages of unrighteousness. One thing God has taught us in the life of our church is every decision is not a financial decision. It's a faith decision. first question a good Baptist asks is when a, something is presented, how much is that going to cost? That's not the question. The question on the table is, is this what God wants us to do? If this is what God wants to do, he will provide. If it's not what he wants to do, he won't provide. Every decision is a faith decision. And so to to be spiritually sane is to walk by faith, not by sight. To be spiritually insane is to walk by sight, not by faith. And if you look at the majority of false teachers, they train people to walk by sight. They walk by logic. They walk, walk by human reasoning. They walk by superstition. They always tend to bring people out of the realm of faith and into the realm of sight. When God transforms your life, he takes you out of the realm of sight and calls you to walk by faith and not by sight. And so when you are offered these wages of unrighteousness, it might be money, it might be prosperity, it might be position, whatever they're luring in front of you as the carrot of the cult, so to speak, to lure you in. Be very cautious because the wages of unrighteousness will cost you more than they ever deliver. Now think about that. It says he loved the wages of righteousness. You know what that that says? It says he is walking around with a for sale sign on his clothes. I'm for sale to the highest bidder. I'll take whatever you offer and I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm for sale. You know what a true prophet says? Not just not for sale, but sold. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God in my 
physical body. A true prophet has been bought by Christ. They are sold out to him. A false prophet is up for the highest bidder. You will see them twist and change their theology to increase the funding in their ministry. Isn't that crazy? They love the wages of unrighteousness. However they can get it, however they can manipulate, they are for sale. They will say what you want them to say if you'll just keep it coming and keep it coming. If the giving drops off, they reevaluate their theology. And they try to put out another juicy carrot for people to lunge after. So who are you following? Are you following Christ? If you're following Christ, then you're forsaking everything outside of this Bible that doesn't line up with the truth of God's word. If you're following Christ, you are not trying to become like some teacher. You're trying to become like Jesus. But these false teachers love the wages of unrighteousness or the payoff for their harmful ways. So how can you tell how to answer that question? Who who are you following? Well, two things that will help you determine that. What has captured your heart? Not just your attention, but your heart. What is it that has captured your heart and controls your heart? That helps you to see who, who it is that you're following. If Christ has captured your heart and his flag is there and that belongs to him, nobody else shares the throne with him. He has captured your heart. Then you can safely say, I am following Jesus. I consult him in my decisions. I embrace his character qualities as my goal for my life, etc. He is the Lord and master of my life. I am following him if he has captured my heart. The second question that helps to clarify The other is, what is controlling your life? Now, some people might say, well, I'm not materialistic, I'm poor. Well, the very fact that you said you're poor could imply some materialism in your life. Because that means you have just compared yourself with somebody else that has more than you do. The right answer to that for a believer is, I'm not materialistic. I am content. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But I've known people that were driven materialistically and with anger and jealous and hatred toward those who had more than they did, and they were just as materialistic as the person who is trying to get all that they can have and be the richest person in the cemetery someday. So it's easy for us to say, well, nothing controls my life but Jesus. But if you look at that, what has captured your heart? What's controlling your life? That will help you determine who it is that you are following. To close, I want us to look at Luke chapter 5. The third gospel, Luke chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, a great scene. Jesus is teaching at the seashore. That was where many people gathered. A lot of business happened around the fish trade. 
He's teaching. The crowd begins to press in. If you've been in a large crowd, you know they press to the front. Unless it's Baptist church and they press to the back. But they press to the front. And so Jesus is kind of pushed out into the water. And he turns and asks a young fisherman named Simon, later be known as Simon Peter, if he can borrow his boat. So Peter brings his boat. Jesus sits in the boat and begins to teach the multitudes. After he finishes teaching the multitudes, to reciprocate for the usage of the boat, he says to this young fisherman in verse four, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Here's the deal. This is during the daytime. It's not the right time to do that. And it's the wrong place to do that. The fishermen, as we're gonna see in the story, fished in the nighttime. And they didn't fish out in the deep. They fished nearer to the shore where the larger fish would come in to feed on the smaller fish in the evenings. So here he's telling a fisherman to fish in the wrong place at the wrong time. You ever tried to tell a fisherman how to fish? And it says in verse five, but Simon answered and said to Jesus, master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. He's saying, wait a minute, we fished at the right time in the right place. We didn't catch anything. Basically he's saying, why do you think that fishing in the wrong place at the wrong time is gonna help anything? Then notice the next word, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. So he operates in faith, not by sight. He goes out, he launches into the deep, he lets down the nets and they begin to catch fish to where the nets are tearing. They're calling other boats to come help with the load of fish that are jumping in their nets. They caught a great number of fish, it says in verse six. They signal their partners, both of their boats begin to sink. When Simon saw it, it says in verse eight, he fell down at Jesus's knees or his feet saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid from now on, you will catch men. And then notice verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. You see how that's the opposite of Balaam and any other false teacher? They will forsake Jesus to get anything else and to follow. But when Peter, James, John, we're in the presence of Jesus. It was all about Jesus. They forsook all and followed him. That's the best way to avoid false teaching. Forsake all and follow him. 
Forsake all the fads, follow him. Forsake your feelings, follow him. Forsake your flesh, follow him. Because that will always put you in a place of obedience rather than being a pawn to a false teacher who would love to get you to forsake the one who was forsaken for you. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.